Heavenly Father, we ask that as we gather around your word, be it here or be it in the Sunday school or be it before you later on today. We pray, Lord God, that in all of these situations, that you will meet with us, that your light will shine through the words spoken and the stuff that's shared. Might you empower us for living for your glory. Amen. Every now and then, someone will say to me something like this. They say, I wish we could get back to just being more like the New Testament church. And I guess I know what they mean when they say that. They kind of look at the modern church, perhaps even their local church, with all its struggles, its foibles, its feelings, they perhaps think people, think people aren't as committed as they should be, or the church doesn't care about the things they're passionate about as much as they do. Or maybe they have a particular vision of the church in Acts, and their fire, their passion, their effectiveness, and they wish we were more like that. And now hear me out, I don't dismiss the desire that lies at the root of that statement when people make that but the, well, every time it happens, a few thoughts occur to me. Some of them I would say, and some of them I wouldn't. One of them is that no one has ever come to me and said this, and then said, so I've decided to start the ball rolling by selling all my possessions for the use of the church. Here you go. In fairness, I've never asked them to do that. And uh, before anyone says it, no, no, nor have I ever suggested that they join me in doing so. <laughs> but there are a couple of other responses I've used when people have suggested this to me. One is that, who do you think pioneered all the feelings of the modern church? Have you read the New Testament? Because they were pretty good, as any modern church is, at creating problems for themselves. And if you've been reading the, following the readings in the Community Bible Experience, you'll see that a fair chunk of Paul's letter writing that we've been doing this way, uh, it's just crisis management. Some of his churches are better than others. Some of the problems are worse than others. Some of the problems are more familiar than others. But a lot of his letters, especially to communities that, both, that Paul both founded and knew, was basically combating some problem or other. And to a certain extent, we should be glad they did have all those problems because that's how we got their writings. We probably wouldn't have caught them otherwise. And then a while ago, somebody sent me this picture, which, I, which I've always found quite funny. It's maybe not that clear, so I'll explain. In the background is a slide which says, here's a general outline of one of Paul's letters. Firstly, he wishes them grace and peace. And then he's thankful to God for something positive about their community. And then he urges them to hold fast to the gospel that they've taught him. And then the next chunk, perhaps the main chunk, is, for the love of everything, holy, stop being stupid. <laughs> and then he finishes by saying, Timothy says, hi. <laughs> so yes, there is this sense of, who do you think invented these problems? But there's one other thought that always crosses my mind when somebody says about the company, I wish we were more like the New Testament church. I always have 
start your silent prayer, which is, Dear God, if we ever do become more like the New Testament church, please don't let mine be like Carl. Those following the readings, whether in the adult versions or the NIRB readings, which a lot of people are using, will have spent a lot of weeks in some letters by an early follower of Jesus called Paul. Uh, we introduced him last week. His, Paul's name is attached to no fewer than 13 of the 27 books in our New Testament and half of another one, the Acts of the Apostles. It's also about his journeys, about taking the story of Jesus into the Gentile world. And if you've been reading, following the readings this week, you'll have spent a few days in two letters he wrote to the Corinthians. And we're going to sort of zone in a little bit on a couple of parts of those letters. Now we read of Paul visiting Corinth in Acts 18, and we can actually put a date on this because Acts tells us that it was at Corinth that Paul met a couple called Priscilla and Aquila, who had moved there because Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome. And there's a Roman historian, uh, Suetonius, who tells us that happened in around AD 49. And incidentally, this might be one of the few places outside the Bible where Jesus is mentioned, albeit indirectly. Because it's suggested that, as Suetonius suggests, that Claudius exposed or expelled all the Jews from Rome because there were disturbances about someone called Crestus, which many reckon should have been Christus or Christ. And as is normal in Paul's account, or Luke's account of Paul's journeys, a couple of things happen side by side. One is that some people believed his message and he managed to establish a church there, and the other is that some people opposed Paul and tried to stir up problems. But at, at Corinth, there was a guy called Gallio, and his name is in the circle there in Greek, uh, in, in, on that stone, saying that he was the proconsul of the city of Corinth. This was found in Corinth. And uh, he was having none of it. He wasn't having any of those people trying to stir up trouble. He, he wasn't interested in what he saw as internal Jewish politics. And this man, rather than Paul getting kicked out, which he was quite often from places, he managed to stay there for about 18 months. And then he moved on to Ephesus, where he stayed for a couple of years. And that was when a few people traveled to and fro between Ephesus and Corinth, and this gave them a chance to send messages to and fro. And what we have is incomplete. First Corinthians probably wasn't Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Because Paul mentions a previous letter that he's written to them, and he also mentions a letter that they've sent to him. And we don't have either of those. And also between what we have as first and second Corinthians, there is probably another missing letter from Paul, which judging by 2 Corinthians appears to have gone down like a lead balloon. And maybe that's why it hasn't survived. Of all the churches Paul dealt with and founded, his relationship with Corinth was probably the most intense but also the most fractious. Corinth was a prosperous commercial city. It had lots of traffic passing through its ports. It also had a bit of a reputation, a reputation for immorality. It was uh, the home of the, to the temple of the, of the goddess Aphrodite, 
goddess of sex and fertility. And priestesses from the temple of Aphrodite would go down into the docks and would sell their bodies to these passing sailors and soldiers. And that was how they funded their temple. And for reasons, for those kind of reasons, it was actually said in, the world, in, that, in that world, not everyone can afford a trip to Corinth. And you see some of those loose morals in the letter to Corinthians, where Paul criticizing them for tolerating behavior that even most people in their infamously amoral city would have been appalled at. Also, you know the way Hollywood often has stereotypes for different types of people in movies? You know, the Englishman is always the posh villain. Ever notice that? Or the Russian is the cold-blooded killer who just expects you to die. And the Irish are the drunken party-goers. <laughs> well, maybe the Corinthians were the Irish of the Aegean, because that was how they were portrayed. Loose morals, drunken party-goers. It's all right when I say it. Poor Amory. None of the rest of you can say that. But Corinth was also a snobby city. They liked to be considered great. They liked to have people looking up to them, to be considered the wisest, the most gifted, the most influential, to have climbed the social ladder, to be seen as the top dog, or at least to be associated with the most important people. In today's language, they had like a celebrity culture. And this infiltrated the church, and they had arguments over whether Paul was better than Peter. Or maybe it was Apollos who arrived in Corinth after Paul had left, and he seems to have been a gifted speaker. Maybe he was better than both of them. And Paul had to remind them that this is not where their true value lies. That Christ didn't call them because they were awesome. Their value was rooted in what Jesus did for them. Their value was rooted in the story of a Christ who wasn't celebrated in their culture, but was crucified. Their value was derived from someone whom most of their community would have deemed the lowest of the low. And the other bit that Corinthians is quite famous for is, you know that great poem about love? Yeah, that's so often read at weddings and funerals. Great poem about love. But it's very easy to miss at the background why he wrote it was because people were fighting each other over who was greatest. In short, they had a very worldly idea of glory. Now what comes into your head when you hear the word glory? Any thoughts? Smile. Triumph, yeah? No wrong answer to Nothing. Well, yeah, I, think, I did a quick Google search on the back. And uh, it, was, it quite often comes along from, from sporting glory, I must admit. I came across two sisters from Northern Ireland, Chloe and Judith McComb, who were chasing Paralympic triathlon glory in 2024. Or I read about the standout Mohammed Siraj skittling Sri Lanka to in, 
as India rocked to Asian Cup glory. Earlier this week, Newcastle United were hunting Champions League glory, or Fiji were chasing Rugby World Cup glory. And that was just this week. Glory was another word for greatness or triumph, as well. And whose glory is being celebrated? Well, the individual athlete or team. And then, in amidst all of those other news stories about them, which contained the word glory, there was another one. And it was from a guy called Bishop Robert Barron. He's a Roman Catholic uh, scholar. He comes from an organized, works for an organization called Word on Fire. He was delivering a presentation at Harvard University. And the takeaway line of this sermon was, the glory of God is man only alive. The glory of God is man only He suggested that in the secular world we live in, the idea that we have to make our own way in the world without reference to religion or faith, in large measure is a reaction to what others perceive as a threatening God. The idea that God is not on our side, that God doesn't want us to thrive, that God is kind of down on us, he's angry with us all the time. And he said the world is most itself when it has found a relationship to the supreme good. What's at its best when it's living in relationship to God? So God doesn't need our praise, our honor, or our worship. He doesn't, it doesn't need it to make him feel better to perk up his day. God's not needy or insecure like that. It's just that we are needed for relationship with God. And I've showed you this figure often in that book. The, the, the network of relationships we live in with, our, with, with us in the middle, God at the top, other people to the right, world at the bottom, ourselves to the left. Yeah, I've showed you that often enough. But there's also another set of relationships that are sort of based on this, which is that we are created to live in a hierarchy with God at the top, us in the middle, and creation as, the, uh, as a, what we're called to rule, the creation. We're created to rule or care for God's earth, but we're also to do so as God's agents under the rule of God. And when we keep that in place, in order that hierarchy in place, the world will know peace. Or to use the biblical word, it will experience shalom. But when this gets out of kilter, when we try to be top dog and usurp God, or even when we sort of subvert our relationship with creation and find ourselves worshipping or relying on creative creative things, stuff will go wrong. <coughs> and that's what Paul means when he says in Romans that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were created to be the crowning glory of God's creation. But when we don't live as God intended, when we don't treat God's world as God intended, we are not fully displaying that glory. And it's not in living to please ourselves, but in living to God's glory, that we become fully alive. That's what Bishop Robert Barnes. When we start to live for, just for ourselves, things go out and go awry. But when we're living in relationship with God, that's when we're fully healthy. But what do we need 
this word glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kapon or kapon. It means literally sort of heavy, weighty, significant, and from there it came to mean sort of honor, respect, majesty. And it's no secret that you know, I'm a big fan of Barbie Land. Or uh, you know, things like Antiques Road Trip. Love those programs. Don't have a clue. Never go antique shopping with me. You will buy tat. But I like the programs. And quite often experts will point to the weight of something as a sign of its quality. You know, there's one expert in particular, James Braxton, he, he calls it the Braxton weight test. He'll take an item and he'll say, oh, that, you know, that really feels good and solid and well made. So something like this, the glory is rooted in the idea of something significant, meaning, valuable, something that has real weight or importance to it. And the word is used in different ways. There is God's glory, which for much of the Old Testament, the glory of God was said to be localized or located in a small sacred place. Yeah, at the end of Exodus, after the children built, so the Israel built the tabernacle, the cloud covered the, tab the, the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then they built the temple, and the priests said the priests could not enter the temple because the glory of the Lord filled it. But later, when Judah falls to Babylon, Ezekiel sees that same glory leave the temple. And that when they rebuild the temple, we never read of it returning. Until the New Testament, when God sends his spirit on the church. And that's why Paul talks of us as a church, and as believers, as God's temple. Because when we turn to Christ, God sends his Holy Spirit to be with us. God's presence is with us. We carry God with us wherever we go because his spirit is with us. Believe it or not, if you trust in Jesus, you carry the glory of God. And as I touch this line, there are perhaps two surprising, certainly subversive things about this glory makes it every day. That's why I call this everyday glory. The first is the vessel. That's true. When I talk about us carrying God's glory, we might not always think it looks like it. Carrying around in these creaking bodies breaks and pains. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we carry it around treasures in jars of clay. And it was a very, it's an image that they would have been really, really familiar with. It would have made a lot of sense to them. They would have known particularly what Paul was talking about. Because such jars were incredibly common. Have you ever noticed on those antiques shows, they're always picking up bits of pot. Always. 
to the parent. The average household would have had quite a few of them. And they carried very little value in and of themselves. And they were made of the most basic of stuff. They were earth. They were clay. And they were cheap, but also very fragile. <coughs> that not feel like us sometimes? Vulnerable to the struggles of life, at times perplexed, at times feeling battered and bruised, we feel disappointed, perhaps we feel forgotten, perhaps we, we get easily discouraged or confused or we start doubting and questioning, all of that. It's human. We're jars of clay. But the more staggering is the jars of clay we are. God is pleased to make his dwelling in us and amongst us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that whilst they might have been oppressed by wisdom, not many of them were considered to be the brightest and the best when God called them. They didn't need to be. They might have been enthralled by power and influence, but not many of them had much of that because they didn't need it. They might have looked up to people of noble birth, but not many of them had that either because it wasn't necessary. And it was all okay. It was never meant to be any different. None of that gave them their worth. None of that was the true source of glory. But it was still in them that God was pleased to make his own. It was in them that his light was shining. And it's in us, the light, however little that light might be. And yes, there was a reason we sang, and it wasn't just for the kids. It's in us that the light is shining, however little. Because it, it was that spirit which Jesus promised to his disciples as he sent them into the world to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and on to the rest of the world. It was that spirit that was in Paul as he was transformed from one of the, one of the people who tried to stamp out the message of Jesus to one who would take it right into the heart of empire. And it's that same spirit who makes his home in us when we place our trust in Jesus and try to But it's not just the vessel containing that glory that makes it every day. It's in the ways which he calls us to express it. There's a saying in sport that is also true of discipleship. There is no glory in practice, but without practice, there is no glory. And it's in the small things, the everyday practices, that God develops his glory in us. Jesus likened it to salt and light. He told us to let our light shine so that, order, so that other people would see the good we do and give glory to God. 
Now, Jehuda, Jesus stayed up to. It wasn't to the bravest, the best, the greatest, the people who had got it needed in Jerusalem. It was to a bunch of very ordinary people on a Galilean hillside that Jesus said those words. Just as it was to very ordinary people that Paul wrote. And just as his words have been preserved for ordinary people like you and me. Jesus didn't sit on that Galilean hillside and say, you could be the light of the world, you know. He didn't say, you will be the light of the world. He didn't say, you know, you're not, you should be the light of the world. He didn't say that. What did Jesus say? You are the light of the world. You might feel like an ordinary vessel. You might feel like your light is very little. You might think, feel like a tea light in a massive dark room. But your light, let it shine. And Paul says, highlights three quick words, which I'm going to touch on very briefly, that have become now our light shine and bring glory to God. And all of us can do these things. The first was in verse 33 of chapter 9. Not looking out for what is good for me, but looking out for the interests of others. Paul was an incredibly complex character. On the one hand, he was the most inclusive character in the New Testament. He argued for the full inclusion of Gentiles into the church without having to become Jews, and in particular without being circumcised. And the vast majority of us men are very grateful that he won that argument. And then in the very next chapter... Paul encouraged Timothy to be circumcised so that he could travel with Paul into, into Jewish areas without causing offence. But didn't fast the same with Titus when they went to the council of Jerusalem. And the difference was that with Timothy, he was bringing uh, Jesus to people who weren't already his followers, whereas Titus was going to those who were already followers of Jesus. And equally, Paul wasn't frightened to use his status as a Roman citizen to get his way and stop himself being pushed around. Paul was no doormat. It was all about getting the message of Jesus out as far into the empire as he could. Paul was never out for himself. That was the thing about him. He looked to the interests of others and calls on us to do the same. Archbishop William Temple is one of those people who everything he said seems to be a quote. But Archbishop William Temple put it well when he said, the church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of those who are not yet members. The church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of those who are not yet its members. The glory of God was revealed most fully in him giving himself completely for us on the cross. And we are at our best, not when we're demanding our rights or looking after our own interests, but to those of others. Paul also said, don't sit, not to give anyone a reason to stumble. Not just in the matter of setting a bad example, although one foolish move can do a lot of more than that. It has to be said, a lot of the time Paul was a pragmatist. 
He gets lots and lots of questions asked, and amazingly, a lot of the time, he always says, it says neither yes nor no. It's not so much, is this okay, or it's not okay. It's not even, do I have the right to do this? This doesn't help or harm others. Does it cause others to struggle for it? Does it not? And finally, he says, whatever decision we make, whatever we do, do it for the glory of God. It's in day-to-day decisions and in small choices we make that God's glory begins to shine out. It's in the choices we make, not when everyone's watching, not in front of anyone, but when virtually no one else will know and no one else will see. And when we step into relationship with Jesus, God sends his Holy Spirit to us to help us live this out. And when we walk in relationship to the Spirit, so we become more and more the person God created us to be. And it may never look glorious in the way our tabloids would describe glory. But when we live this way, we bring a smile to the face of our Heavenly Father. Because we are displaying His everyday.